Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, January 11th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm back in New York. It's Mo Shwanunu. Back in New York, and your voice is mostly back. <laughs> Jill, on a 10-point scale, is giving me a 7.5 as far as my voice is concerned. I was hoping for an 8. <laughs> yes, this is what we do pre-podcast. I, I rate his voice. Yes. Um, I am Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, it was a particularly active Wednesday afternoon that has uh, refreshing the stories we're going to do throughout the day. The lesson in life and in any newsroom is like you plan the news gods laugh. I thought we had this day wrapped up. The newsletter was pretty much finished by 4.30 p.m. I had the podcast almost done by 4 p.m., 5 p.m., But no, alas, breaking news, everything's different. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Which means we are extra happy that your voice is stronger and that you are back in New York. Uh, Let's get to some headlines. A big shakeup in the race for the White House. Chris Christie dropping out. Who stands to get a big bump in the polls? Overseas drug gangs take over a TV station live on air in Ecuador. And now there is a state of emergency as the government tries to get things under control amid growing violence in the country. A deadly avalanche strikes a popular ski resort in Lake Tahoe. Hunter Biden makes a surprise cameo on Capitol Hill, leading to a chaotic day in Congress. Bitcoin goes a bit more mainstream with a long-awaited approval by the SEC. We'll tell you what that's about. Also overseas, the U.S. and the U.K. are poised to launch a significant attack on the Houthi rebels in Yemen as the terror group's attacks are now taking a huge toll on global shipping. And Mosh, here's a big news flash. It is not just workers who want to work from home. It's their bosses also. (laughs) Yet they are still pushing for return to office requirements. They're not telling employees that, but apparently they're telling folks in this new culture. <laughs> and some big college football news. A legendary coach is retiring. And it is not Jim Harbaugh. Not yet, at least. Not so. yet, I don't think. And Mosh will have on this day in history. Jill will go from the Grand Canyon to Major League Baseball to Gitmo to John Stewart to Bob Ross. All in today's On This Day in History. A huge shakeup in the GOP presidential race just days before the Iowa caucus and about two weeks before the New Hampshire primary. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is suspending his campaign. Christie was always a long shot for the nomination, but he was the most vocal critic of former President Trump. Unlike the other candidates, Christie was not afraid to challenge Trump, even if it meant getting booed at some of the debates. And he spent a significant amount of time in his dropout address last night saying that he will do anything to make sure Trump is not president again. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for president of the United States. I know, and I can see it from some of the faces here, that I'm disappointing some people by doing this. People who believe in our message and believe in what we've been doing. I also know, though, it's the right thing for me to do. Because I want to promise you this. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable 
Donald Trump ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. Christie's departure could give a boost to Nikki Haley. They have been going after a similar group of moderate voters, particularly in New Hampshire. Recent polls showed him reaching the double digits in the state. But Haley has the momentum. A CNN poll from just this week found that Trump's lead was down to single digits with four in 10 likely Republican primary voters in New Hampshire choosing Trump and about one third now picking Haley. The GOP primary in New Hampshire is on January 23rd, and it is an open primary, meaning that it is not just registered Republicans who can vote. Mosh, there is some reporting that Christie did not discuss this decision with Haley and that he is not going to endorse any candidate just yet. A lot of anti-Trump Republicans had been putting pressure on him to step aside. Still, this decision came as a surprise. What do you make of it? Yeah, he was intent on at least staying in the race through New Hampshire. He was was betting big there. In fact, uh, some people in his inner circle were saying, you know, he has no plans to drop out. Mosh, come visit us. Um, up in New Hampshire as the governor campaigns. Now, that poll you mentioned, that's 39% for Trump, 32% for Haley. So a seven-point advantage, 12% in that poll for Christie. So you can imagine, given uh, what Chris Christie has been saying, that the majority of his voters would go to Haley, basically making that race completely even in New Hampshire. And New Hampshire matters, uh, not because it has a significant amount of delegates, but because it happens second, and it can provide a lot of momentum, change the media narrative as the race continues going into what's next, South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state. So New Hampshire matters. And clearly what's happening here is this is a lesson from 2016. In 2016, which incidentally, Chris Christie ran for president as well, you had a race with Donald Trump, who at the time was getting between 25 and 30% of the vote. But then you had about 16 other candidates in the race. Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, Ben Carson, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, and they refused to get out. And so what they did was they split the vote, enabling Trump with his 25% of the vote to win primary after primary after primary. So this time around, what have we seen? Mike Pence dropped out. Tim Scott dropped out. Chris Christie's dropping out before a single vote is cast. The feeling is you got to give, now that Trump has about 40 to 50% of the Republican Party behind him, you pretty much only have room for one other alternative to try to beat him and ensure that there is a non-Trump alternative. So Chris Christie, given that that is his North Star, right? We cannot have Donald Trump be president. That matters to me more than my own personal ego. And by the way, you still have to have a lot of ego to run for president. I think <laughs> you should be leader of the free world, <laughs> for the record. But he says he's putting his country and his party before himself here. And so that is what we're seeing here. He basically, long story short, doesn't want to be the excuse Nikki Haley uses when ultimately, if she doesn't beat Trump, he doesn't want to be like, well, I didn't do it because Chris Christie refused you know, to get out of this race because of his ego and took a, a number of voters away from me in New Hampshire when I could have really uh, put a dent into Trump. And so uh, that's where you're at there as far as the endorsement side. The feeling from Chris Christie is DeSantis and Haley have shown no backbone here. Right. They continue to try to thread the line here like, well, Trump is not so great, but, you know, I would still be his VP. I would pardon him. I'll still endorse him if he's the nominee, despite the fact that he's been indicted uh, and he could be convicted criminally. And so Chris Christie's like, where is your pride? What do you even stand for here? And so ultimately, as far as he's concerned, no one deserves his endorsement right now. 
given that he doesn't feel they're showing enough of a backbone here, particularly Nikki Haley. And this is really interesting, Jill, and we've seen this in many presidential campaigns, hot mic moments. Well, it turned out Chris Christie, the microphone was on before his event, dropping out of the election on uh, Wednesday. If you were listening to his live stream early, suddenly you were hearing Chris Christie. Uh, There was no video, just an audio feed with a graphic. Uh, And you were hearing him clearly behind the scenes talking to somebody. We believe it was the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party. His name is Wayne McDonald. He matters less in this. What matters more is what Chris Christie had to say. Take a listen to a bit of Chris Christie uh, caught on a live stream until the audio engineer noticed and then takes it down. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent 68 million so far, just on TV. Spent 68 million so far, 59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he's going to, he's still going to carry Iowa, right? Yes. Always. Oh, I, t- you know, I talked to DeS- DeSantis called me petrified that I would. He's probably getting out of Iowa. So there is no video feed. Again, just audio feed. We put up a clip over on the um, Instagram account. And he's basically saying he doesn't think Kaylee can win. He thinks she's going to get smoked by Donald Trump. But again, he doesn't want to be the excuse that she uses. And then, of course, he says that Ron DeSantis called him. They had a conversation and he's petrified. Petrified of what? We don't know because then the audio cuts out. Uh, And so it appears based on that, uh, Nikki Haley ain't getting his endorsement anytime soon. He doesn't think she can win. But again, he's feeling the pressure from her supporters, from the anti-Trump wing of the party. Get out, Chris, and give her a shot here because she's beating you in the polls. Most the first thing that I thought when I heard these comments on the, the hot mic was that this was intentional. That Chris Christie is having this hot mic moment minutes before he's about to drop out of the race. Uh, any Any thought that perhaps this was intentional? Not that it necessarily matters, but I'm just curious what you think. I don't know. I, I listening to that conversation, it would be have to be so strategic. And and by the way, these things are typically very choreographed, right? They specifically leaked out to media ahead of time that he was going to drop out. He had a phone conversation with Ron DeSantis. By the way, political reports that he has not spoken to Nikki Haley directly for several weeks now. And then to cut out at that moment, I mean, that is that is a piece of art. Like I can't imagine <laughs> that like Chris Christie planning this speech. And by the way, he gave a, a pretty uh, compelling goodbye speech. Uh, you know, we played a short clip of it. But in terms of talking about the history of the party and uh, basically saying, you know, uh, he's talked about how upset he is with himself that he supported Donald Trump in 2016. They basically he put his ego uh, before his party. And so he's very disappointed in where things have gotten. And he feels the Republicans have lost their way. And this takes away from all of that, right? So I, I know that you know, in many cases, people want to ascribe like certain intent here. I think it is what it was. It was an accident. Uh, somebody turned it up or somebody was trying to listen in on what he was saying and accidentally turned it on for the internet. <laughs> what? And then there was like this, oh crap thing yeah. as they saw Twitter starting to blow up with it, you know, nearly a minute in. And then uh, it went down. It is interesting though, because the DeSantis petrified thing, a DeSantis person clearly got to Politico because Politico is reporting that Christie and DeSantis have been having several phone calls, and they've actually been talking about their mutual belief that Haley is a poor candidate here. So that comes from the DeSantis camp. They're revealing that Christie has been basically talking smack on Nikki Haley for a couple of weeks here, which would explain why Nikki Haley and Chris Christie haven't been speaking. That said, let's talk about bottom line here. Ultimately, this matters for New Hampshire. 
New Hampshire is key here. In pretty much every other state, Trump has more than 50% of the vote and is beating Haley between 20 and 30%. Now, if Haley can pull off a victory in New Hampshire, that could be a game changer in the early campaign season. And that is what Christie is basically trying to open the door to her, even if he's expressing behind the scenes a lack of confidence, shall we say, that she can win. Okay, things just got a little bit more interesting. We'll see how it plays out. And by the way, this matters zero in Iowa because Christie wasn't playing in Iowa and they're voting first on Monday. So, just, you know, just getting the record straight there. And it is expected to be the coldest Iowa caucus on record, um, or at least since records started to be kept. So it'll, it will be interesting to see what turnout is like. Even for Iowans who love their politics in winter, it's going to be rough. All right, let's switch gears now and talk about a very, very important story overseas. There is a total crisis right now happening in Ecuador. Soldiers are on the streets in several cities of that country as they are reeling from just unprecedented violence. Masked gunmen stormed a TV studio during a live broadcast in the city of Guayaquil. So the gunmen took the anchors and the staff hostage and demanded that they get wired up with a microphone to send out a message that would be directed at the government not to interfere with, quote, the mafias. That live coverage lasted for about 15 minutes. Then the signal was cut. The police arrested 13 people. They confiscated weapons and explosives. The hostages were eventually freed and and safe. Bombs had been detonated across Ecuador on Tuesday. There are more than 130 staff in prison that are actually being held hostage by the inmates in five different jails. Ecuador's president has called for a 60-day state of emergency that started Monday after a notorious gangster uh, broke out of prison. This gangster is known as Fito. He is the boss of the Chineros gang, a huge drug cartel that is, is just really wrecking havoc on the country. The president, Daniel Naboa, declared a state of emergency again in response to this wave of jail riots and escapes from prison and other violence blamed by authorities on these criminal gangs. And he ordered that they be, quote, neutralized, saying that an internal armed conflict is existing within the country right now. So the government says the violence here is a reaction to the president's plan to build a new high security prison for the gang leaders. Remember, the president here, Naboa, was elected after one of his opponents actually was assassinated last year by this Chineros drug gang. The government says the war on armed gangs could result in many deaths and casualties here. They say, quote, it's going to be bloody, but this is the change we need in order to have a better future. We cannot be postponing this decision throughout the years. We have to take the decision now, hours after these attacks, including the one on the TV station, Guayaquil was like a city waking up from a nightmare. We actually heard from a number of people, Jill, in the Monus community who live there, some born and raised in Guayaquil, who said they've never seen the country like this. And it's uh, become increasingly destabilized and chaotic in the last couple of years, especially. Hundreds of soldiers now, including tanks, are patrolling the streets of the biggest city there across the country. Schools remain closed. Many stores remain closed as well. Ecuador's largest gangs have ballooned in recent years, feeding off the cocaine trade and cocaine profits, some of them connecting with Mexican drug lords. Uh, Cocaine producers in neighboring Colombia use ports in Ecuador to then ship the drugs to the U.S. and Europe. It's caused the murder rate in the country to skyrocket several hundred percent in the last couple of years. Uh, Notably, you also have the drug cartels in Latin America connecting with Hezbollah and terror groups in the Middle East. 
which are experts in money laundering. So there's a terrorism nexus uh, with these drug gangs. Jill, I posted on the Instagram account yesterday that one of the ways they get the cocaine around the world is in banana shipments because there's so many bananas. So uh, there's been huge busts and fines in the Netherlands, in the U.S., in Spain, in Italy, in Turkey, in Morocco, um, all from uh, bananas from Ecuador with tons and tons and tons of cocaine being hidden in those boxes. Um, so there's a huge issue here. And again, the drug trade here has really destabilized the country. Uh, we'll have much more on that. We're doing a special issue in the Mo newsletter this week on Ecuador and just the unfortunate situation there. Uh, some of you uh, you know, have traveled there. You've told us your story. Some of you have traveled there on route to the Galapagos. The Galapagos Islands uh, belong to Ecuador as well. And it's just very unfortunate because this is not the country uh, many people remember even a few years ago. And it's notable because you've seen more stability in countries like Colombia, but then you've seen destabilized situations happening in both Mexico uh, and Ecuador as the drug situation in both those places. The drug lords have taken more control. And if you think uh, this doesn't affect us here in the United States, it certainly does, because there has been this huge increase in the number of people trying to get into this country coming from Ecuador because of, of just how dire the situation is there. Yeah, one thing we should connect here is, you know, one of the main reasons you're seeing so many people on the border is their countries are getting destabilized. They're not just coming to America because they were in the mood to move and and travel a thousand miles by foot uh, to get here. It's because their countries are chaotic situations, right? You have nearly 8 million Venezuelans that have left in the last 20 years uh, as that country is falling apart. You have an issue in Nicaragua where people are uh, having to leave. Uh, Cuba, Haiti, uh, and now in Ecuador. So we're seeing uh, more and more migrants from these countries showing up on the U.S. border, claiming asylum because of the chaos, uh, because they're living under threat, because they can no longer live their lives. And so they're basically saying, we're going to just try to make it happen in America and we're going to try to get through the border because we can't raise our kids and have our families and, and have a life in these countries anymore. And now to one of our longtime sponsors. If you are a longtime listener, you know that we have both been drinking AG1 for months now. And especially with young kids, we could use all the help that we can get when it comes to energy levels. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. It supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. AG1 continuously has been refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 is a team of doctors and scientists that tested for 950 contaminants. It is NSF certified for sport and formulated based on the latest science with the highest quality standards. I have one friend who drinks AG1 and always says it's kind of like his insurance policy for the day, meaning that whatever else he has, whatever he eats or drinks, he knows he is covered, that he already got all the really important nutrients that he needs. And I'm the same way. I take AG1 in the morning and I know I am just covered for the day. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Check it out. 
All right, time now for the speed read. Let's start out west from ABC News. One person was killed. One other person was injured in an avalanche at a popular ski resort in Lake Tahoe in California on Wednesday. The wall of snow slid down the mountain at around 9.30 a.m., 30 minutes after the ski area at the Palisades Tahoe Resort opened. The sheriff's office said the avalanche's debris field was approximately 150 feet wide. 450 feet long and 10 feet deep. There was a desperate race to search for survivors amid 100 mile per hour wind gusts. Beyond the man who was killed and the other person who was injured, officials say that two other people were caught in the avalanche but were pulled to safety. Search efforts had concluded as of Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, so some of you might know this as Squaw Valley Resort. It's been renamed in recent years Squaw, of course, hosted the Olympics uh, decades ago. This was actually, uh, yesterday was the opening season for a new chairlift there. Witnesses were skiing as they saw the avalanche come down. So an investigation is underway as to what happened here. Uh, Certainly the winds are probably going to be a factor here. But these are pretty rare to see. Ski resorts are pretty good at taking prevention measures, including using controlled explosions of the snow to prevent avalanches, particularly out west where they get tons and tons and tons of snow. Uh, Notably, though, about 28 people die every year in avalanches in the U.S., but to see it at a ski resort is very rare. Usually it's people who are skiing, you know, independent out there um, and not at a, a formal resort. So a scary situation in Tahoe, and we'll wait to see what the investigation finds. From the Washington Post, a bit of chaos at the Capitol on Wednesday. Hunter Biden making a surprise appearance on the Hill. The House Oversight and Judiciary Committees were meeting for two separate votes to hold Hunter in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena requiring him to sit for a closed door interview. Now, if you remember, Hunter said that he didn't want to sit for a closed door meeting because he was worried that Republicans would selectively leak parts of his testimony to make him look bad. He instead was insisting that he wants everything public and on camera. Now, this all stems from a Republican House impeachment inquiry into Hunter's dad. President Biden. So far, Republicans have yet to find any concrete evidence to support claims that President Biden or then Vice President Biden participated in and profited from Hunter's foreign business dealings. But back to what happened on Wednesday, Hunter stunned lawmakers by showing up on Capitol Hill. He sat quietly in the front row of the Oversight Committee room as members spoke. Representative Nancy Mace, she is a Republican from South Carolina, immediately taking aim at Hunter. Uh, Let's take a, a bit of a listen to what she had to say. You are the epitome of white privilege coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here and... Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman, um, if the, the lady if, if the general lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from I'm Hunter speaking. Biden. What are, are you afraid of? To speak? Hold on, hold on. Most then you could hear Representative Jared Moskowitz. He is a Democrat from Florida kind of interjecting there. Uh, but shortly after that, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a Republican from Georgia. She tried to. Yeah, we know her. <laughs> in case you haven't heard of her, she tried to start questioning Hunter. And that is when he and his team just got up and left the meeting. Yeah, I mean, quite a stunt by Hunter here, but he's doing a stunt to Republicans that are pulling stunts on him. 
a lot of theater at play here. Marjorie Taylor Greene, by the way, saying, Hunter, you left the room because you can't handle a strong Republican woman. They're probably going through his head is the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene leaked nude photos of him from his laptop then slapped them on huge posters, uh, actually leading networks that were covering a hearing to have to was them out uh, because, again, there were nude photos of Hunter with a prostitute from his laptop. No love lost between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Hunter Biden. Uh, you know, Greene's engaged in revenge porn here. Either way, the lawyer for Hunter Biden spoke to reporters in the hallway afterwards after uh, putting Hunter in the front row and then having him walk out. Uh, he says Hunter's a private citizen. Despite this, Republicans are trying to use him as a surrogate to attack his father. The Hunter Biden team clearly here continuing to say, we are happy to speak in public here. Republicans saying, we'll have you speak in public, but we want you to have a private deposition first uh, so we can ask you all the questions we need to without the formality of a hearing. And then, as you noted, the Hunter people saying, no, 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 you will not do it behind the scenes because I know that you guys will then leak stuff about me. So this theater continues, uh, but it now means Republicans are probably closer to holding Hunter in contempt. As a, a legal status, by the way, you might recall um, people being held in contempt of Congress for not testifying. During the Trump administration, Democrats held a number of people in contempt, including Steve Bannon and others who eventually had to serve a time in jail after they were held in contempt. So it's not an unserious situation, and it comes as Hunter has other situations here. But clearly, he's trying to draw a line in the sand. Uh, either way, they're probably not loving this in the West Wing, where President Biden would like nothing more than not to have to answer questions about his son anymore. Uh, that said, it continues here, and Hunter is, you know, being particularly more aggressive with the Republicans who have been going after him. Uh, and so we'll see if they hold him in contempt. It would then go to the Justice Department, and the Justice Department, run by Merrick Garland, who reports to President Biden, would then have to decide whether to prosecute Hunter Biden, who, by the way, has already been federally indicted here, and that's notable, right? Uh, despite the fact that his dad is a president. Hunter Biden is facing uh, that weapons charge and is facing the uh, tax charges, which could mean fines or sometime in prison eventually. From CNN, the SEC gave its approval Wednesday for some investment companies to offer spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds. The regulator's highly anticipated move is expected to make Bitcoin investing a bit more accessible to average investors, giving them exposure to crypto without requiring them to own Bitcoin directly. SEC Chair Gary Gensler made it clear in a statement on the SEC's website that the agency is still a bit weary. He said, quote, while we approved the listing and trading of certain spot Bitcoin shares today, we did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Investors should remain cautious about the myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and products whose value is tied to crypto. Bitcoin is the leading cryptocurrency. It has a current market cap of about $900 billion. It has seen volatile price swings throughout its 15-year history, most recently after hitting an all-time high of nearly $69,000 in November of 2021. It fell below 17000 during the crypto winter of 2022, and it has now been mostly trading north of 45000 in the run-up to the SEC's decision. There has been a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, since the fall, Bitcoin's price has surged 60% as traders have been betting that this ETF decision would happen, giving more legitimacy um, to Bitcoin, exposing more people to Bitcoin and crypto writ large. We should say, Jill, there was a false alert on Tuesday. After the stock market closed on Tuesday, there was a post on the SEC's Twitter account falsely claiming that they approved this listing. 
It turned out uh, they were hacked a day before they made the decision. So that threw people uh, for a loop on Tuesday. That said, it is real now. Crypto advocates are very pleased with the move. They see the ability to offer a spot Bitcoin ETF as a bridge between traditional finance and crypto. It allows investors to partake in the Bitcoin journey without the technical hurdles of you know, going to Gemini or Coinbase or Robinhood and buying Bitcoin or Litecoin or Ether directly. Uh, you know, it's like buying a spider fund, right? You can just uh, expose yourself to the overall S&P through an ETF. You don't have to buy individual stocks. And so a bunch of organizations are now approved to trade uh, that Bitcoin ETF as soon as today. That includes uh, companies like BlackRock, Fidelity, a Wisdom Tree, Bitwise, etc. So some larger names there. From CNBC, the U.S. and the U.K. have hinted that they could take military action against Yemen's Houthi rebels after the two countries repelled the largest attack yet on Red Sea shipping. The aircraft carrier-based jets and warships shot down 21 drones and missiles launched by the Iran-backed group on Tuesday night. The Allies' warning of consequences for such attacks asked about potential counterstrikes in Yemen. U.K.'s defense secretary said... Quote, watch this space. The Houthis have repeatedly claimed, often falsely, that they are attacking merchant vessels linked to Israel in protest of Israel's actions during the war in Gaza. Tuesday's attack was the 26th on commercial shipping in the Red Sea since mid-November. Yeah, a few of these attacks have been related to ships going or coming from Israel, but the vast majority are just ships going through the region. Remember, you go through the Suez Canal, then through the Red Sea, a significant portion of global shipping traffic passes through there, or did. Now, many are being rerouted around Africa. More on that in a second. Uh, as far as this attack on Tuesday, Jill, uh, the U.S. military says that Iranian-designed one-way attack drones, anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-ship listing missiles were all launched from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. 18 drones, two cruise missiles, one ballistic missile, all shot down by F-18 warplanes. So the global supply chain is suffering here. We are feeling the fallout. Freight prices are set to jump here. Longer transit times, because now you got to go around Africa, as opposed through the Mediterranean, through the Suez, down to the Red Sea, and then around the Arabian Peninsula. So it's adding weeks. It's adding a cost. It's delaying things. Uh, vessels are not able to come back to Asia in time. Ocean carriers are canceling sailings on a short notice here as a result of these ship diversions. Spring clothing, footwear, home goods, electronics, patio furniture, pool supplies are among the things on these vessels that travel through this part of the world. Vessel volume through the Suez is now fallen nearly two-thirds. Now only about six vessels a day are passing through the Suez Canal. So some notable regional politics here because ultimately you have a fellow Arab nation suffering here, Egypt. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how this all uh, comes down here because then you have the Houthis here who are messing with the Egyptian economy. And you can imagine Al-Sisi is already dealing with high inflation and economic issues in Egypt while also trying to draw an allegiance to the Palestinians in Gaza, but not at the expense of his own economy. So economic fallout internationally, regionally, and uh, notable there, Jill, that comment from the UK defense minister, watch this space. So we're going to keep monitoring for what comes next. And just want to mention, Yemen is extremely poor, about 80% of people in that country live below the poverty line. And one of the reasons that the United States had been hesitant to basically declare the Houthis terrorists, a terrorist group, is that it would make it harder 
for them to get aid to Yemen. Uh, so that's been one of the things behind this conflict. Um, but clearly, the situation is just becoming untenable. Yeah. And ultimately, the U.S. doesn't want to escalate things into a regional war. Keep in mind, there's been a civil war in Yemen now going back a decade, uh, basically a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians, the Saudis fighting the Houthis, which are supported by Iran, the Saudis backing the previous government that the Houthis took out of the capital, uh, which they now control. Yemen's sort of a split country now. And so that war has taken a toll on that country, one of the poorest in the world, as you mentioned, millions displaced, going hungry. And the Houthis, who are effectively running uh, the main part of that country, focused on attacking ships in the Red Sea, as opposed to basically managing the country they just took control of. So as we reported across the region, the losers here are the people who live there. All right, from CNBC and the years-long debate over remote work, upper-level executives have often been the loudest and staunchest advocates for returning to the office. Turns out many bosses want to work from home as much as, if not more, than their employees do. This is according to a new survey <laughs> of about 3,000 American workers and managers from a software company called Checker. The survey found that 68% of bosses, a group that includes middle managers, executives, and business owners, would like remote work to continue in 2024, while less than half, 48% of employees, feel the same way. So that is is quite a big difference. More than 80% of executives and non-executives want flexibility in where they work, including a majority of those that are in the office full-time. And that is from a Future Forum's February 2023 survey And this is true of high earners as well. A July 2023 report from McKinsey found that one third of employees that are earning over 150,000 bucks would actually quit their jobs if they had to return to the office full time. Workers are also divided on returning to the office while hybrid work has become the most prevalent and favored arrangement among employees. Remote jobs are still in high demand. Yeah, so there's a disconnect here between managers' true feelings and the mandates that they are enforcing. Uh, That stems from the financial incentives, pressure from shareholders, higher-ups to get the employees back to work. The feeling among many companies is that, depending on the industry, that folks are more productive when they're working back in the office. But clearly a divide here when you survey them anonymously. Notably, given the state of the job market, the low unemployment, the fact that it's really been uh, a worker's market for a while now, The balance of power has been with the employee to be able to demand things like uh, hybrid work situations. But most recently, uh, the trend line has gone back to the companies, especially as many of them look at their unused office space. Joe, we put out a post on Instagram this week. uh, 20% of all office space in America is currently unoccupied. Uh, Pretty remarkable, a, a record high. And so you're looking at these companies, are looking at their bottom line, and they're looking at their offices, they're looking at their various sunk costs, and they want to get people back to work. But when you then survey these folks, you find out that everyone sort of likes the Fridays from home and the hybrid situation. And really, I think in America in particular, we've discussed this on the pod before, given that, you know, we're known to not take our vacation days, have less vacation days than the Europeans. COVID really was a game changer. Whereas in Europe, people are back to work because, again, they get more vacation time. Things are more laissez-faire. They can take the month of August off, depending on the country that you're in. 
Meanwhile, in in the U.S., you're in the middle of a colonoscopy and you're you know having to <laughs> send an email. It also does make sense that it's the higher ups, probably the older employees that want to work from home more than the younger employees. The older ones probably have families; they want to be home. They don't feel like commuting, or they have multiple homes, Jill, and they want to work from their vacation home too. There's that as well. But either way, it it is pretty interesting what these studies find and how even now years since the pandemic started, it has it has so dramatically changed the way that we live and work. And finally, from ESPN, Nick Saban's coaching reign has come to an end. Saban, who won seven national championships, more than any other major college football coach, and turned the University of Alabama back into a national powerhouse, is retiring. The 72-year-old restored a Crimson Tide program once ruled by Paul Bear Bryant, to the top of college football after taking over in 2007. He finished just shy of the top in his final season, leading the Tide back into the college football playoff after a shaky start this season. But his team fell in overtime to Michigan in a semifinal game at the Rose Bowl. Mosh, thanks for giving me that read. Of course, Jill. Uh, Anything uh, to let you show uh, your pride as a Wolverine. So Saban here... Uh, mainly coach college. He did make a two-year foray into the NFL where he coached the Miami Dolphins, but then returned to college football to revive the Crimson Tide, one of the most storied franchises here. They had not won a national title in 15 years. He then led the Tide pretty quickly thereafter to nine SEC championships. He then won his first national championship with Alabama back in 09, and then won again in 2011, 2012, 2015, 2017, 2020. So he did surpass Bear Bryant, who had six uh, overall championships, Uh, Sabin, as a coach, has seven championships, as you mentioned. One thing that was always fun to watch was Nick Sabin's press conferences. Uh, He always shot straight here. A lot of uh, notable quotes. If you search, if you Google Nick Sabin uh, quotes, a lot will turn up on the Internet, especially if you're trying to motivate folks. He recently, one that caught my attention, he recently said to his players, you get up every day, you're entitled to nothing. Nobody owes you nothing. You could have talent, but if you don't have discipline, if you don't execute, you don't focus, you get nothing. If you're complacent and not paying attention to detail, what does that get you? Nothing. Nothing is acceptable but your best. Everything is determined by what you do in trying to be your best. Jill, when you wake up tomorrow, just know you're entitled to nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, Moshe? I respect it. He is old school. And you know what? It got results. Look, his team year after year after year did incredibly well. Yeah, it's a really kind of hard-nosed approach, which is like you got to work for it every day. And clearly, I mean, we went through all the championships that he won in that period of time. It's, it's pretty incredible what that philosophy that he brought to his players got him. Mosh, my one piece of advice to you as, as boss is, you know, don't put that up in the office. You guys are nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the opposite of Ted Lasso. Like, we're going to put the quote on the wall. You're entitled to nothing. Nobody owes you anything. (laughs) Show me that discipline. Don't be complacent. Interns would come in and they'd leave like, do not work here. Nobody goes to that office. Especially given the reputation the younger kids have these days, Joe. All right. Now time for On This Day in History. We begin in 1908. President Teddy Roosevelt declared the Grand Canyon. You might be familiar with it a national monument. After William McKinley uh, gets assassinated, Teddy Roosevelt, who, by the way, some of you may know, uh, was vice president, becomes president, and he made environmental 
conservation a major part of his presidency. He established the National Wildlife Refuge to protect the country's animals, fish, and birds, and then turned his attention to federal regulation of public lands. So he made a major point of declaring these national monuments to ensure that stuff wouldn't get built there. And that includes the Grand Canyon, which we're thankful for today. On this day in 1935, Amelia Earhart departed on her journey to become the first pilot to successfully fly solo from Hawaii to California. Trying to fly that, it actually claimed the lives of 10 previous aviators. She earned $10,000 from promoters for achieving that feat. A little baseball history here on this day in 1973. 51 years ago, the American League established the use of the designated hitter. This is a, effectively a pinch hitter who can bat for the pitcher while the pitcher still stays in the game. It makes the a game a bit more excited, but the National League for many years, five decades, was very old school until they finally switched to adopt the designated hitter back in 2022. On this day in 02, the first detainees were transferred to Gitmo, the detention facility. This is out of 9-11. The U.S. didn't quite know what to do with the people arrested in the war on terrorism. Jill today, there are still about 30 detainees at Gitmo, still costing U.S. taxpayers tens of millions of dollars a year. I should note, they're still trying to figure out how to do the first trials after 20 years. A number of the people there, if they haven't died, have been returned to other countries. Uh, but then there are a number of the inmates that no country will take back. And the U.S. still trying to figure out the legal mess that is Gitmo. And on this day in 2020, Chinese state media reported the first known death from the new COVID-19 virus that had infected dozens of people. They reported it on this day in 2020, though we would come to know later that uh, COVID was already circulating months earlier in 2019, and the Chinese were keeping that hidden. All right, we'll end a bit lighter here uh, with a bit of music and pop culture news. On this day in 1992, Nirvana made their first appearance on Saturday Night Live. They left their mark after performing songs like Teen Spirit. They trashed their instruments and everything else they found on stage. On this day in 1999, Jon Stewart became the host of The Daily Show. He would host for more than a decade, becoming one of the most influential people in politics. And finally, one of our favorites, The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross, premiered on this day 41 years ago, January 11th, 1983 on PBS. Okay, hopefully we are as soothing as Bob Ross. Probably not, though, because it is a news podcast. Either way, thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. We'll see you back here for another edition tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.